So she fed 70 of the business and civic leaders in the community. They passed out her business card to everybody there. Through that, she got connected to the Michigan Business Women's Association. And a year and a half later, she opened up Adelita's Fajitas at the corner of 8th and Harrison in Elkhart. Now, if we had asked her when she showed up, tell us how poor you are. We would have all ended up poor for it. And we would have missed a lot of great food. And all of a sudden I realized this is what I believe. I don't have to change my theology. I don't have to change the way I think about Jesus or God or anything, but I haven't been doing this. Why have I been asking people instead what's wrong or what's missing? And I realized all my practices had been built around scarcity. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I come that you may have life abundant. That isn't life abundant when our pockets are full. That isn't life abundant when the bank account is bursting. It's life abundant right here, right now. Welcome to the Missing Voices podcast. This podcast is all about youth ministry, young people on the margins of society and the church, and how we might better love, serve, and learn from those young people. We're convinced that these often overlooked and forgotten adolescents belong in the church and that our youth ministry should take them seriously. So with each episode, we'll take a look at these ideas and together wrestle with what the future of youth ministry might just look like. I'm Mary Sini, one of your co-hosts. And during this series, we will hear from some of our partners, coaches, theologians, and friends of the Missing Voices Project. So let's dive in. Podcast listeners, today we will hear from Mike Mather, one of our theologians and residents at the Missing Voices Project. Just as we were beginning this journey of creating the Missing Voices Project, we were able to meet up with Mike in Indianapolis, where he was pastoring at the time. The stories preceded him, So we met Mike with an eagerness to glean from him and see the church, Broadway UMC, and its surrounding community, and meet a few of the folks who give Broadway its unique heartbeat. Get ready to enter into a totally new mind space of approaching ministry as we listen to Mike's experiences, as well as learn from him about the beautifully disruptive mentality of asset-based community development, which focuses on abundance in each individual over scarcity and requires us to leave old patterns, methods, and metrics behind. We're glad you've joined us. Okay, everybody, we've got Mike Mather here on the phone. Mike, are you there? Thanks a lot, Justin. Here we are, Mike, you and me (laughs) hanging out. We're going to do the podcast thing. Mike is a friend, has become a good friend. I've heard stories about Mike over the last couple of years, so I had to find a way to loop him into what we're doing here at Flagler. But Mike is the fir- is the uh, senior pastor at First United Methodist Church of Boulder out in Colorado, and he is one of the theologians in residence for the Missing Voices Project. And uh, I would say probably, Mike, I, I want to let you introduce yourself, but I'm going to just start us off with this idea that uh, the first time I heard about you, I heard about this this guy somewhere who was hiring a youth minister and said, uh, you know, hey, we're going to hire you to be the youth minister. But if you start a youth group, <laughs> you're fired. So like that's the first like three years that I had heard about you, like that was the majority of what I had heard. <laughs> 
But Mike, who, before we get into all that good stuff, is there anything else that you want folks to know about who you are and where you are that would help us understand a bit of, of sure. your context? Um, I've been a pastor for a long time. I've been a pastor for 36 years now, 35 of them in Indiana, and 34 mm-hmm. of those 35 years serving two congregations um, named hmm. Broadway. <laughs> okay. So I. Perfect. Um, that's where I met you is actually what's yes yes so I mm-hmm. um, first went to Broadway United Methodist Church in Indianapolis in 1986 I was to run the outreach programs at our inner city church um, it is mm. a church that had been at one point in the 1930s and 40s the largest church in Indiana not the largest Methodist church the largest church in mm. Indiana wow. and um, then white flight had hit in the a uh, 50s and 60s and 70s and the white folks a lot most of the white folks in the congregation left leaving a remnant in what is um as you know justin because you've been there a cathedral (laughs) right Um, yeah yeah it has nine kitchens it has 27 bathrooms it's yeah it's quite the building (laughs) it's like my house (laughs) absolutely (laughs) so yeah, no, this place is pretty unbelievable. And one of the things that was so interesting to me was the way that you repurposed it. I'm sure you're about to say that, but I, just, I couldn't resist uh, just being so shocked after I sort of toured the space to go, wow, this really does exist as a gift to the community. Yeah, well, and before it had been mainly a gift to ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but what happened was um, over the course of, of – um, decades building on good work that had happened there before, but d- just to step back a minute. So when I got there, there was this summer program going on. I got there at the beginning of the summer and the summer program for the kids in the neighborhood was basketball for the boys and cheerleading for the girls. Mm-hmm. And, we, um, <laughs> you know, we painfully changed that. <laughs> Took a couple okay. of years. We built each week around a spiritual principle we started every day with devotions. We ended every day with devotions. We had classes in Bible study, math, history, violin lessons, um, everything, poetry, uh, everything you could possibly uh-huh. imagine. 250 young people, nine to five every day. And I broke wow. my arm patting myself on the back. I felt so good about all of this. Yeah, Mike, you are really I was rocking. The congregation loved it. <laughs> you know, the funders loved it. All this. It was great. I was awesome. <laughs> yeah. And then. <laughs> I was yeah. awesome. And then in 1991, <laughs> in my last nine months there, I did nine funerals for young men under 25 years old in the four block radius around our church. Many of them had grown up in the programming of the church. And here Mm -hmm. I was thinking I was doing all this great work. I was feeling like I was on top of the world. I I was doing amazing things. And nine young people Mm -hmm. in a four block radius in nine months were killed. And it kicked the heck out of me. Here I am thinking I'm doing all this good work. And the, this happens. And people would say to me, well, yeah, but if you hadn't been doing this, it would have been even worse. And I had two things to say to that. One is no. And the, even, and the second thing was, even if you're right, this isn't good enough. 
Right. Yeah. There's no consolation right. there. Hmm. There was no consolation. Wow. Absolutely. So I left there and the bishop sent me to another church in South Bend, Indiana, in a low income neighborhood there. Um, and that church was also called Broadway. And um, it was a <laughs> tiny little church, 40 people in the, in the, um, you know, inner city. And we had a food pantry. And when people came to our food pantry, we asked people how poor they were. You know, how much is your income? Hmm. How much are your expenses? And people would tell us, right? And then right. Um, they'd tell us our income $600 a month and my, our expenses are $1,200 a month. <laughs> yeah, there's mm -hmm. a lot we can do mm -hmm. with that. Um, <laughs> right. So we came to Pentecost in 1992 and we're sitting around church afterwards and we're talking about uh, the service. And this woman says, you said that Peter reading from the book of the prophet Joel says that God's spirit flows down on all people, young and old, women and men. And I think, mm. how good am I? I'm an excellent preacher. It's a half an hour later and she remembers what I said. I'm really good at this. And I said, that's right. And she says, well, when people come to the food pantry, you ask them how poor you, they are. If you believe God's spirit flow down on all people, young and old, women and men, how come you aren't asking them that? I don't mm. know. <laughs> I don't know. So the very next day, Monday, after Pentecost Sunday, we start asking people 10 pages of questions about what their gifts are. And I'm not talking about these mm. gift surveys that, that churches do. I'm talking about, have you taken care of older folks? Have you taken care of children? Are they members of your family? Have you had a job somewhere? Have you been helping somebody out? Can you fix a toaster? Yeah. Can you drive a car? Do you play a musical instrument? Do you sing? Do you grow things? If you grow things, do you grow flowers? Do you grow vegetables? And we ask three questions at the end. What three things do you do well enough you could teach somebody else how to do it? What three things yeah. would you like to learn that you don't already know? And who besides God and me is going with you along the way? Those are three pretty important questions. And I have to say as I've read the book and worked with you some, like those questions still haunt me a bit. I mean, so how, how did you get to those questions and what have those, how, how would you think that those questions have shaped who you are since you started making well, that Well, I think the reason we, I got to those questions is because I was confronted by the irreality between my practices and what I talked about. Oh my goodness. You know? Um, here I was saying that God's spirit flowed down on all people, but then I wasn't trying to pay attention to what that was. I had been taught to look for the need, to look for what was missing, to look for the emptiness. I hadn't been mm. taught and trained to do that. So we, had, so the very first day we started doing that, the first person who came to us was a little woman lived half a block from the church named Adele Almagir. And she told us she was a good cook. And so we said, prove it. And she said, what do you mean? Well, cook for the custodian, secretary, and pastor lunch on Friday. So she cooked for us. It was fabulous. And we paid her for it. So the leadership right. of the neighborhood organization was meeting. We said, don't meet somewhere else. Meet here and let Adele cook for you. She cooked for them. They loved it. Hmm. Over the next nine months, she cooked for Studebaker Elementary at a PTA meeting. She cooked for the Southeast Side Neighborhood Health Center having an open house. And she cooked for Memorial Hospital having a press conference in our neighborhood. Then the Chamber of hmm. Commerce called. They said, we'd like to have an all-day meeting of our leadership program in your church building. 
And we said, well, that day works for us. And they said, since we're going to be there all day, we need to use your kitchen. We said, we would prefer you use our caterer. So we mm-hmm. took 20 bucks and bought her a thousand business cards, said La Chaparita Catering, Spunky Tex-Mex Food. And she- <laughs> yeah. After that phone call, you hung up and said, now we have a catering company. <laughs> so she fed 70 of the business and civic leaders in the community. They passed out her business card to everybody there. Through that, she got connected to the Michigan Business Women's Association. And a year and a half later, she opened up Adelita's Fajitas at the corner of 8th and Harrison in Elkhart. Now, if we had asked her when she showed up, tell us how poor you are. We would have all ended up poor for it, and we would have missed a lot of great food. (laughs) And all of a sudden, I realized this is what I believe. I don't have to change my theology. I don't have to change the way I think about Jesus or God or anything. But I haven't been doing this. Why have I been asking people instead what's wrong or what's missing. Hmm. And I realized hmm. all my practices had been built around scarcity. In John wow. 10, 10, Jesus says, I come that you may have life abundant. That isn't life abundant when our pockets are full. That isn't life abundant when the bank account is bursting. It's life abundant right here, right now. Yeah, yes. Yeah. And yet all the hmm. practices were around meeting needs. And hmm. uh, go ahead. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I was saying, I mean, it's really bled into our culture in such a way that every grant application, every sort of nonprofit initiative seems to almost always be uh, dictated by this. I mean, I, I, I work with an organization in our community here. They get about $60,000 a year to work with kids in a particular aspect of the community. And we have to show that they, number one, that their address is in the zip code. And number two, that they receive free lunch. Yeah. Right. So, we ha- and, and what that's saying is prove to us that these young people that you're working with are in this range of poverty and then we'll be a part of what you're doing. So it's starting with this deficit from, you know, square Absolutely. one. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. That's what we mm-hmm. always that's what we did. And you know, those grant applications, one of the th- ways that things started to change for me as I began to look at what was like grant applications. Yes. They're always like, tell us what need you're addressing. And mm-hmm. I would start, I started writing in there. The biggest need in our neighborhood is to be needed. Mm. And all, you know, we began mm. to shift and say, you know, our neighbors aren't needy. They're needed. We're all needy, all of us. I mean, it's a basic tenet of Christian theology, right? We're all in the Mm -hmm. same sinking boat, (laughs) but we're all saved by the same wonderful God. Well, is this the way I'm treating people? And the question I began to ask myself, we began to ask ourselves was, how do we live as if the gospel is actually true? Yeah, what if? What if it was true and how would that So let me lives? go back to this summer program, okay? So we come right. I come back to Broadway in Indianapolis 12 years after I'd been there before. And they're running the summer program the same way as when I left. And it wasn't bad. It wasn't doing anything bad. People still loved it, were impressed by it, everything. But it wasn't changing the facts on the ground. And right. and it was a deficit-based model, right? We were looking at the young people as the people to act upon, 
rather than as the actors, the agents, the, you know, we, our culture is the one that's created adolescence. Every place else in the world, when you're 12 years old, okay, we're expecting you to make your contribution, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so what? So, Actron versus yeah. actors. That itself is a yeah. Paradigm so shift. we stopped doing the summer program. Let me tell you, that was hard. I, I was going to say I no, no, no. I remember years ago hearing someone talk by about discernment by nausea. <laughs> <laughs> this was what that moment was. You know, no, these young people who we've been treating as the ones we pay people to come in, we ask volunteers to come in and teach them and stuff. What if they are the actors? What if God's spirit is active and present in them and in what they're doing? So Hmm. we hired them and we paid them to meet their neighbors. That became the new summer program. We hired young people who lived in our neighborhood and we paid them to meet their neighbors. And they did three, they do three things. They name the gifts, talents, dreams, and passions they see in the lives of their neighbors. They lay hands on them and bless them. And they connect them to other people who care about the same thing. We call it name, bless, and connect. Go ahead. Name, bless, connect. So Mike, I mean, I think that sounds beautiful, but I imagine the room full of people are looking around when you make this announcement and they're like, what the heck is he That's talking right. about? I think there were some expletives I mean, thrown in there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, but this is, I mean, really, truly, this is a culture shift, like a paradigm shift that, um, I don't know. I mean, it, it goes against everything that we've been conditioned to think. Right. Or, in my mind, I'm, you know, and as we've been doing some of this work, you know, like I mentioned earlier, you're one of the theologians in residence with Missing Voices Project. You've brought this sort of way of thinking to our cohort of folks and, and we're all sort of wrestling with this, but it's, it's hard to, to sort of unlearn and relearn. How did you, how did you lead that community into this? I mean, you, you can't just overnight drop this program and start this new thing and have that be up and running and everyone's happy as can be. I imagine there was some some transition and there was some bringing along. So yes. So I I will say a couple things to that. The first is, you know, I think you asked me once or somebody at Flagler when we were there said, well, wasn't there pushback on this? And my response Mm -hmm. was, of course there is, was, you know, I at the time had been a pastor for 25 years. I knew, I knew that if, um, that there was nothing one can do in a church at which there is not p- pushback, including <laughs> doing nothing. <laughs> right. <laughs> so the question is, is there pushback or is there not? The question is, you know, how do we face the pushback? And is it something we actually believed in? believe in? I remember one of the members of the church mm. said to me, um, you know, Mike, I don't understand this. And I said, well, yes, you do. He said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you're a chemist at Lilly Pharmaceutical, right? And he said, yes. And I said, well, you go to your work and your boss comes in and says to you, hey, how's that new drug doing? And you say, it's doing great. And your boss says, how do you Mm -hmm. know? And you say, I just feel like it. (laughs) 
How long do you have your job? But we run things in the church all the time where we're doing this stuff and we don't even try to figure out. We had run a tutoring program that I helped strengthen considerably when I was there in the 80s and early 90s. And that tutoring program, every year we ran it for 30 years, the graduation rate in our neighborhood got worse. It did not get worse because of what we were doing. It's just that we were doing something and we never even tried to figure out if it was making things better. You know, if it was strengthening. So around the time that we um, made this change in the summer program, we went to the School of Public Health at the local university at IUPUI in Indianapolis there. And we went to the School of Public Health and we said, we're a church. We know nothing about evaluation. We know how to count the number of people who show up for worship. We know how to count the offering. That's what we we count. Right, right. We want to know, can you tell us, as a result of what we're doing, are people actually getting healthier? As a result of what Hmm. we're doing, do people who don't have money have more money? As a result of what we're doing, are more people graduating from school, from high school? Are more people Mm -hmm. getting good jobs? And, And we put it in their hands. It wasn't our gift. But it didn't have to be our gift. It could be the gift of somebody else. So so the second summer after we'd been doing this, the fall after the second summer, I get a call from the State Department of Health in Indiana. Now, when you're the pastor of a church and you get a call from the State Department of Health, this is not usually a good thing. Right. Right. We're shutting down. And I'm like, they said... Uh, we want to come see you this afternoon. And I said, why? And they said, we'll tell you when we get there. Oh my god! I'm gosh, not kidding. kidding. And I'm like, That's, shoot. Okay. So they yeah, show up and they start out by saying, we've been investigating you all for the past four months. Okay. This isn't going well. I'm going to jail. <laughs> and they said, our job is to make the people of this state healthier. And we haven't been doing a good job. But our research shows that what these young people are doing is actually making the community healthier. And we just got $250,000 from a foundation, and we'd like to give it to these young people to build on their work next summer. Now, if we had kept doing the old thing we'd been doing, this nobody would have said we were making the community healthier except people who didn't know. Right. right. (laughs) These were people who were studying it and looking at it and looking at the effect in people in our community. So this began to have effect on the program, all the programming at the church. I'm not going to talk about all the internal structures about church council and all that. But since you brought up the thing about youth um, and the youth group. So the thing that happened with this was we realized that we'd been. So let me tell you this story. A a little over a hundred years ago in Indianapolis, a group of young people, 16 to 24 years old, uh, a group of Methodist young people over a hundred years ago, went to the Methodist conference in Indiana and said, there is not health care for the poor here in Indiana. 
There's not a hospital that the poor can afford to go to here in Indiana. We'd like to start a hospital. Hmm. Again, remember, this is over 100 years ago. So give us wow. a, a million dollars to start a hospital. <laughs> I can't even imagine. I know. That well, this is the problem, right? <laughs> this is this is the problem. Right. So so now what we ask for in the United Methodist Church of young people is that they come to annual conference and jump up and down on the stage and clap their hands. <laughs> you know, bring energy, we say, right? <sighs> We don't expect yeah. that they are young people who have power, who care deeply about things and know things and are willing to learn things, right? Right. And so we said we have got to restructure ourselves. We can't be running youth programs. We've got to be paying to the young, paying attention to the young people. So what we decided to do was to and when we hired this person for the pastor for children and youth and families, and we asked him to organize individual meals around each of the young people in our parish, both young people inside the congregation and young people outside of the congregation. Okay. And so what they would do is, so the meal would always be held, almost always be held at the young person's house. Um, Okay. There were there was one time we held it at the church because there were so many people in the in the family and people coming that it couldn't all fit in the house. Um, <laughs> right. Sometimes some of these young people didn't have a place to live, so we would have it at somebody else's house, a friend of theirs' house. Okay. So what would happen is the young person's family would have to be there. Then the young person could invite anybody they wanted to invite of any age. And then we at the church would think about who else we thought might be interesting to go to this meal. So then everybody would eat. And then after the meal, we would go around the room and ask everybody there to tell that young person what gifts they see in that young person's life. I mean, wow. think about that. Yeah, I can't even imagine how amazing. Now, again, this isn't actually, this isn't the way we started it. We, we, we switched a little thing. What we started at the beginning was we used to ask the young person first to tell us what call they thought they had in their life, what they were thought they were going to do with their one wild and precious life, what they thought uh -huh. God was calling them to do. But we found out that they were often kind of shy about that. But if we asked first everybody in the room to tell the young person what gifts they saw in their life, we, you could see the confidence building in that young person. And so then the young yeah. person would speak their truth out of the context of hearing people say a variety of things about them. So then after... The, so after the, everybody would tell the young person what gifts they saw in their lives, then we'd ask the young person to tell us what call they thought they had for their life. And then after they named that, we would turn to everybody else in the room, young and old, and said, what do you have to offer to the gift that this young person has, to their sense of calling wow. in the world? And then after they, people around the room and, and this, everybody didn't have to speak. Anybody who had anything could offer something. 
And then after that was over, the we invited the young person to come to the middle of the room and everybody would lay hands on that young person and we would offer them a blessing. I, I mean, I can't even imagine, Mike, these, these had to be so overwhelming, sacred, beautiful. I mean, what, what's an example or can you, can you share a memory of the way that people in the room might react when you ask them, what will you do to help this young person live sure, in this? Like, sure. So um, I remember one, um, we were doing it for a young woman named Jasmine. Um, and uh, so as people went around the room, about the third or fourth person, and it was a young person who first said this, um, a young person said, well, I, w- I go to her school, and at this, at this um, spring show we had, she sang, um, a, she had a little part in this choral thing, and it wasn't like a whole solo, it was just a little part, but she killed it. She was great, you know? And then when it came to um, her mom, her mom talked about how she and her daughter loved to sing together um, in the car. And so wow. this continues around the room and people are talking about other things with Jasmine too. But this, And so when it gets to Jasmine, this young African-American woman, she says, well, I do love to sing and it's really great to hear. And, you know, I've had this secret dream. And and what go. I've always wanted to do is sing opera. Like huh. everybody in the room is shocked. <laughs> yeah. 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 One of the that people <laughs> that, that Dwayne, the pastor for children, youth and families had invited to the, to the dinner was a guy in the church named Felipe who sings in the Indianapolis opera. <laughs> so wait, did this, did the director of the children and family, did, did he know? No, did he no, no. It was okay. just a gift of wow. God in the middle. And so Felipe said, would you like a tour of the Indianapolis opera? And she said, sure. <laughs> and, and then he said, you, you know, did. there's this piece that I think fits both of the range of our voices and I think we could work on this and sing it together at church. Would you be willing to do that with me? Wow. I mean, none of that would have been possible, right? If we hadn't paused, right. paid attention. Um, you know, uh, Mary Oliver has a poem on instructions on living, and it goes, uh, pay attention, be astonished, and tell somebody. <laughs> uh, we didn't. I didn't hear of that poem until after this, but I thought, wow, that's, that's what's going on here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what's so provocative, Mike, is that you're, you're just saying, Hey, there's, there's a different set of lenses that you could look at young people with and that those lenses would assume things like gifts, power, agency, ability, voice, interest, you know, all of these things that, are uh, you know proper to young people, but I think most of us encounter young people and we think, well, that that is sort of like in waiting. Like maybe <laughs> one day it will emerge, um, but it's not their time yet to do that. <laughs> yeah. And so for now, they're meant to be like yeah. passive recipients in our education systems, in our churches, and in our communities. You know. You know, I'm the one who is often making the young people wait. <laughs> You know, yeah. <laughs> I was the one who was not expecting that they had something to offer right here and right now. Yeah. Yes. You as a pastor. I mean, I'm yeah. not proud of it. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. But this is the That's learning right. curve. I mean, this is what it means to, to grow is to acknowledge these things. And you know, can I on. say a word about that with you, you talked about the grants and just to connect these two again, you know, grants often ask for deliverables. And I remember mm-hmm. we were talking with a, a guy with a foundation and he said, I expect you guys are going to ask me for money. And we said, no. And he said, why not? And we said, because you want deliverables and we can't promise you deliverables. He said, well, what could you promise me? And we said, we could promise you discoverables. (laughs) What we can promise you is we don't know the answer, but we do know how to begin to try and figure it out. And if you want to go with us along the way, we're happy to do this. I tell you, our experience was funders really were interested in this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh, Mike, you know, I, I think you know this, but we had we adopted that early on in the Missing Voices project. And one of the very first things that all of our congregations had to do before we ever got together uh, was they had to draw a map of their town and put their church at the center of the map and go out, you know, in every direction. And their job was to try and locate these discoverables to start asking people, what are the gifts that are taking place around us? What what good things are happening already that the church could potentially, you know, in the context of their projects, get behind and support and, you know, try to bolster more of that. And it was fascinating that there were people that said, I had no idea less than a mile from our church, this was taking place. Or these people over here, they already had this coordinated effort for so many years around this particular need. And we had no idea it was in our backyard. And now we're going to explore how can the church just help them? You know, like that was a, sort of an eye-opening experience for a lot of our folks. Yeah. Well, this is the thing is there's so much more possibility when you don't have it all figured out to begin with. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is like holding the space to pay attention to what God is doing in the lives of young people around us in the life of, in the lives of our communities. Mm -hmm. Which is a theological statement, right? To be, to assume to assume that God is active and working in the lives of these young people. And our job is not to go and generate that activity, but rather to acknowledge it, to see it, to you know slow down long enough to locate it. And then to say, how do we be a part of that with, with these young people, with what God is doing? That's a very different mindset as opposed to like program development right. or something. Again, we called it trying mm-hmm. to live as if the gospel is true. What does it mean? If we believe and trust, even if we don't see, if we believe and trust that these young people are gifted and powerful, how are are we conveying that message that we believe that? Not just in words, Hmm. you know, how are we giving Hmm. them real power? How not giving them real power? How are we tapping into the real power they have? I think you know yeah. that one of the one of the things that's important to us about language around our place is that we don't talk about empowerment because empowerment means to give power. It, it means I have it and you don't. And our thing right. is, right. you know, that isn't the way to think about it. It's the same thing we talked about, you know, early in this conversation, changing questions, right? So instead of asking right. how needy are you, asking how gifted are you, right? And, um, you know, we in the church have often asked the question, how do, you know, 
how, how do we get people engaged? It's the wrong question. The question is, how do hmm. we engage ourselves with what God's doing in the lives of these people around us? Yeah. And if we ask the question, how do we get people engaged? It's clear who's in the driver's seat. We are. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and I think for the most part, churches that have any sort of history of programs, they're just terrified of letting go. Like the fact that that church was willing, that Broadway was willing to let go of that summer program that it had 10 plus years of what many people would have considered to be very successful, quote unquote, ministry. Um, that I'm shocked. I mean, like that, I just think that that there's a lot of churches that that would probably come to blows over that, you know, like that's going to become pretty divisive and just really challenging. But instead now you're asking totally different mm -hmm. questions. And then all of a sudden you have, you know, plenty to celebrate because you've started well, listening. And again, one of the really important things to say about this is you're right about the different places that are pushback, but that's why it was important to not just do this in one part of our life, but just to orient everything. It changed the way we did worship. It changed the way we did structure in the church. It, it um, what Diamond calls fabric, what my, what a, one of the lay people at Broadway calls fabric, you know, how do we, hmm. how do we stitch together the power that's here? Right. And you can't stitch it together yeah. until you can actually see it. And if what we spend right. time on in meetings is the church is reports rather than paying attention to the gifts of people. Did, Justin, have you seen that new book by Willie Jennings about theological education and racism? So he is, he is this line in the book that I think is just so accurate about this. He talks about how the, one of the schools he was at, they were having to tighten the budget. And he said they were tightening the budget, but they were leaving unused gospel lying all around. <laughs> and I think that was our practice uh, as a church is we were leaving unused gospel lying all around the unused gospel that was the mustard seed in the life of each of these young people, you know? Yeah. And yeah. anyway, that, that book, th that line in that book was worth the whole cost of the book for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I wrote down a couple of things you were saying earlier and you, you mentioned this, that you had been operating out of a deficit based model and now you're you're shifting to what I assume you would call an asset-based sure. model, like to go and look, listen, ask, inquire, examine what are the gifts that are already inherently, you know, being used and and that people are living out of, and they just simply need, uh, you know, it's almost like I remember like Henry Nowen's book on um, uh, where he's talking about hospitality. The idea is that when someone has a gift to give. They don't get to be a gift giver until there's someone to receive that gift. <laughs> That's right. You know? And so like maybe part of our job uh, to, you know, name and validate and lift up the gifts that God has placed in people is to start being the kind of churches and congregations who can receive those gifts. But our, our posture so far has been that, no, 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 don't worry. We have the gifts and we That's give right. Them. Everything's about the agency and the power that we have collectively through the agency yeah. of the church rather than the power that God is at work in through the lives of every single person inside and outside of our churches. Yeah. 
That's that's a challenging thought. I mean, it really it might people might hearing this might go, oh, that sounds great. <laughs> well, well, wait a minute, like run the logic to its logical conclusion here, like run it to the end. And you realize, oh, this challenges a lot of the sort of norms that we have in our worship, in our, our programs and our budgets of our churches. I mean, it really would push on us uh, to take a step in this direction. What? um you know, so I'm, I'm thinking again, you know, like this podcast uh, and our work right now with you as you intersect with us in the Missing Voices Project, you know, we're working with a dozen congregations around the state of Florida who are trying to create new expressions of youth ministry that are focused on young people that have historically been, you know, overlooked, forgotten, marginalized by the church and society. And so, you know, like these are places where we have not had the eyes to see these gifts and these assets. And these congregations, for one reason or another, have been prodded or you know slapped upside the head or however you want to describe it to become painfully aware there are these incredible young people right here in our congregations, in our communities, and we have not been listening. We've not seen them. We've not taken the time to get to know them. Uh, for for folks that might be listening to this podcast that want to start taking steps in this direction, where's the entry point? I mean, how would you help them take a first step? So, the, so I would say that it's idiosyncratic, and that doesn't mean that there's not uh, some principles to think about with this. So for us, example, okay. in the story I told you today, it was just changing a question at the food pantry that ended up doing that. Now, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. the issue was we had a food pantry and this is where it came up. The, the, the question is, where is it around us? So let me give you in a couple of examples. I could imagine that in every church or community group, there are people who we identify as good listeners. So Mm -hmm. what if we said to, you know, a couple of people, um, who are good listeners, Hey, would you go spend some time with some of the young people and their families in the, in the parish, both inside and outside the congregation, right? Visit them at their homes, mm-hmm. have them show, you know, have them show you around the home or whatever, and just find out, ask the parents in front of the kid, you know, what gifts do you see in this kid's life? Ask mm. the young person to say something about what they think about their dream for their life is. I mean, and just do a little bit of that listening. And then after a few months of doing that, have those couple people who've been listening come back together with the young people who they have talked with and said, Hmm. here's what we've heard. Do you see any, is there any energy in this room for building off of anything here? Um, You know what I mean? Um, So I, you know, we would get seminary students um, and we would ask them to go like one of the things these young people did when they did the name blessing and connecting is they would find gardeners and they would find cooks and they would find entrepreneurs. And then what they would do, the connecting part is that they would bring people together of varieties of ages, but who were all cooks would all come together or all gardeners or all people who love technology. Or all, you know, hmm. and I would send seminary students, interns at our place to go to these gatherings. And almost always the seminary student would say to me, what's the agenda? And I would say, <laughs> no. 
What I want you, to, oh, what I want you to do is I want you to go there and pay attention. Where's this spirit moving? Where do you see the energy in the room? Was there a connection between some people there that just really sparked? Come back and tell us that at the church, and then let's see if we can build on that. So right. I just think, you know, one doesn't have to do that, but if one there are people in each of our congregations who are good listeners. And if we can ask them to pay some attention and then talk with us about what they notice and hear, then we, right. again, this is discovery, right? Then we can go and look for the next thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting. I, I feel like I'm seeing this play out in, in the congregation I'm a part of right now. We had uh, two people. We have a surfer <laughs> and a skater that um, both just love their thing, right? I mean, this, the, the skater is a 24-year-old new middle school teacher, bought a house right next to this middle school and has decided, you know what? I want to build a vert ramp, which is, you know, I don't skate, but skaters out there can laugh at me for butchering this right now. But essentially, it's like a, a, a big ramp that is hard to find. There's not a ton of them out there. And there's definitely not a lot of places that would just be open to having people come. So this guy said, you know, I really think we should have a vert ramp in our community and create a space for people to be together. Well, all these other people in the community said, we love your idea and we want to help. And Mike, it's been hilarious. Like the, the Jacksonville News has done stories about mm -hmm. it in the last two weeks. He, he pulled together, like all these people came together and, and pulled together about $15,000 to build the ramp and to do everything he needs to do for it. And I mean, it's been incredible to watch people say, yes, we want to support you as you create space for the skating community to be together. And in the same way, our, so our church has said, like, number one, they help pay for part of the ramp. And number two, they're just saying, what do you need? Like, how can we help you go do this? Right. And in the same way, we had a retired uh, elementary school teacher who retired and said, you know, it's been my lifelong dream to open a surf school. I want to teach people how to surf and enjoy the ocean. And so here she is. She started Salty Sisters and she started a surf school for women and, and girls. And, you know, the church has said the same thing. Like, how can we help you do this? What do you need? And it's been so fun because it doesn't come back into the church necessarily. It's, it's the church just coming alongside people from within the church saying, how can we help you go be who you're called to be and do what you're supposed to be doing? And it's been, but the funny thing, Mike, is it's felt revolutionary. <laughs> like people are like blown away by the idea that the church is supporting this guy building the skate ramp or this woman who's starting to surf, you know, surf lessons yeah. and stuff. It's been hilarious. Well, I, yes. And then the, the, what begins happening by word of mouth in the community is, oh, that's the place that believes in people. That's the place mm. who sees us. I mm. mean, that's yeah. that's one of the side gifts that comes with all of this. Um, but yeah, I agree. <laughs> wow. wow. Okay, tell me a little bit. You know, as as I think about shaping learning communities in the context of my work at Flagler College, you know, as I think about. Um, the discipleship that is inherent within that context of teaching, but also working with congregations. I'm fascinated by this learning journey idea mm -hmm. of yours, uh, that, that you take people and you create these experiences or you curate space and time or whatever 
to allow people to uh, slow down and listen and see. And I know you can't necessarily like manipulate or manufacture particular experiences, but you know, you can get a bunch of the, the right people in the room together and get away from their homes and their normal lives and, and sort of open them to something else through these journeys. But tell us about those and how that was a part of shaping your so community. So I would say a couple things about this. Um, so one of the things that we always did when, so I started very young, like when I was 18 years old, I read a book by a Dominican priest <laughs> that talked about going to talk with people who you think are interesting and doing interesting things. When I was 18, really? I wanted to be a professional jazz trumpet player. So okay. I was in college working on a music degree and friends of mine and I, and I heard Dizzy Gillespie was going to be at this uh, thing with a college in, in Texas. So I wanted to meet Dizzy Gillespie and talk to him. My friends did too. Sure. And we didn't have much money. We drove a car from Indiana down to, to Dallas. Um, and we had to stop every three hours to retie the muffler up <laughs> it kept falling down um, you know yeah you know we we made it work and we went and and we couldn't afford to go to the conference but we could hang out around the hotel and we were hanging oh out gosh. around the hotel and dizzy gillespie walked into the space we were in and wow. so we talked with him and it was a real lesson so that was in my head very early and and I like to read a lot. And when I read a book and I like it, I'll write to the author and say, man, that really made me think, Could would you ever be open to a conversation? And so then wow. what I started to do um, later, much later in my late 20s, early 30s, was started going on trips to go talk to these people and taking other people along. And then as huh. we began to think about this from the asset-based perspective, I started thinking about not just taking people from the church, but people from outside the church and people who would otherwise mm. never be able to do something like this. So yeah. we yeah. would take in South Bend, one of the things we started doing was taking the police chief and or, or other police officers with people from our neighborhood because there were bad relations between police and the people from right. our neighborhood. But if they went on a trip together, it was a little different, right? And yes, hmm. it was always great to go listen to somebody else who's thinking about some of the same things you are. But it was, the benefit was always less about, I mean, this is like an old saw now, but less about the destination and more about the journey. It was more about the people right. being on this together, people who would have never otherwise been together, a university professor, a police officer, a kid who just got out of jail. Uh, you know, I mean, it, it was always different. Right. And I didn't have to go on all these trips. I go on a lot of them because I like to go talk with people. But we didn't mainly talk with people <laughs> in churches. We went and talked to economists. And we went and talked to people who worked with jails and we went and talked to poets. And almost always when we would go and talk to these people, they would say, well, why would a church want to come talk with us? 
<laughs> and, you know, then they would get, that was often what gave us time with them. They were often very busy people, but they were like curious. Like, why would yeah, a church? Yeah. We went and talked with a doctor in Philadelphia, Dr. John Rich. He's winner of the MacArthur Genius Grant Award. And he'd been really hard to get to. And we said, why did you eventually respond to this? And he said, well, um, one of my grandparents was a minister and we kept getting calls from this church. And I figured they'd roll over in their grave if I didn't answer. (laughs) (laughs) And so we went and talked (laughs) with him. And and if I can tell another little story about this. So we went and talked with him because he'd done this thing where He's African-American from Queens, and he had gone to Harvard Medical School, and he'd refused to work at Massachusetts General Hospital because he wanted to work with people who looked like him. So he worked in the Mm. poverty hospital, and he's seen young men shot and stabbed coming in who look like him. And he Mm. hires them. Hires them Mm. to be health advocates for what he calls the health crew. Because he said, who knows more about okay. health in their communities and who cares more about health in their communities. Now, what I would have thought in the old days was, well, I need to get them therapy. <laughs> you right. know, I need to teach them <laughs> about how to be peaceful. But what he did actually reduced violence by putting hmm. the power, by, by recognizing the power they had and by investing in that power. And that's what he won the MacArthur Genius Grant for. So we went to see him to talk with him about this. And he asked a question at the beginning that no bishop has ever asked me, no district superintendent, no other clergy, that I never asked people. He asked us, who are the healers in your community? Wow. I mean, and so we sat there and people started naming people. And then right. his follow-up question was, what are you doing to support them? <laughs> and like, that's like yes. the most simple on the nose sort of like, well, of course. But, but that's not. why we take learning <laughs> journeys. Wow. So, but I mean, it really is that there are people on this trip who never would be with each other otherwise. And they build relationships and learn the truth of, people that, you know, you can easily categorize in our society, right? Well, that's, that's an at-risk youth. No, it's not. It's Jalen. Right. Yeah. Yes. Person. And Jalen's really interesting and Jalen has power. So, you know, that's what ends up happening on this. And you do that more and more and more. And it just created a field of people who'd had that experience. It started out being a section of a row and then it became a row and then it became half an acre and then it became an acre, you know, until it's the whole darn field. Well, you know, it's, it's so interesting, Mike, like I'm, I'm just thinking about how this paradigm shift has affected our project here. And as I'm looking, I'm sitting in my office, I'm looking at my whiteboard that has these little pictures of each of our sort of site leaders from each congregation. And I can remember conversations with different folks saying, I love this idea, but, you know, I'm working with high school students who live in a group home who have no families, they're in foster care, Uh, you know, like they live in this group home because there's nowhere else for them to go. They've effectively been stripped of all of their 
gifts or assets? Like, how do we talk about that? And slowly but surely they started to say, well, actually, we began to realize that even though they've been on the receiving end of this like really challenging life story, they do have these little sparks of beauty or of joy or of gifts that we could build on. And they start to draw those out, you know, or uh, I'm thinking about one of the congregations that's working with kids in the queer community that for the most part have experienced nothing but hurt and harm on behalf of the church. And so the idea that the church would want to acknowledge and validate and draw out their gifts, like there's a lot of warranted hesitation about that, you know? Um, and, and yet it's been beautiful to have these folks walk alongside young people and start to name some of these gifts and invite them to bring that to the church as a gift to the church, but also to their own communities. Uh, it's been amazing. And so, I mean, the the name of your book for, for people that are you know listening in here, is called Having Nothing and Possessing Everything. And I think that it does an incredible job of telling some of these stories, but also giving us these questions that might help us reframe our own version of the question. Like you said, you know, you had the food pantry and it asked you or forced you to ask you know, questions that made sense in that context. Everybody listening is working with young people in some manner and could have their own version of these kind of questions that assume that God's presence, God active, uh, the gifts, things like this, the assets that are inherent. Um, I just think that's such an incredible challenge, Mike. I mean, it really, I know it's changed your whole life and, and everywhere you've gone since. I'm wondering, you, you've moved to a new church in Boulder this is probably this this mentality was not already there, I'm assuming. Right. This way of looking at the world. Right. Yes. Yeah. 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 So you now you're in a new context, having learned all you've learned. What's it been like to invite people in Boulder to start asking? These well, you know, um, one of the things that was funny <laughs> was that um, a, a, a member of the church here um, whose spouse had died asked me to come see her. And I came by her house and she said, Mike, I've been reading your book. And I said, yes. And she said, what in the hell are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, and I, don't I said, know. we're going to discover <laughs> together. And, and, and the, the, thing, well the thing about it is, and I've been very clear with them because I've been worried about this. I was working at one place for the last 17 years. And I thought sure. I need to really make sure that I pay attention to who these people are and what God is doing right. among them and that God wow. is yeah. working in the same way with all these people, but these are different and unique people. So I just need to pay sure. attention. So we've been talking a lot about that. I think the biggest change for them has been changing what happens in meetings to not listen to reports, but to listen to each other. To, to stop huh. saying what we're going to do here is talk about, we only have, you know, people have less and less time for meetings, right? It, it's just a reality mm -hmm. of our current world. So there is some business we have to get taken care of, but most of that we can take care of inside conversations outside a meeting. Sure. So let's use the meeting to learn what God is doing in each other's lives. So like hmm. one of my favorite questions has been to them recently is, um, so tell me about the person who's most unappreciated or underappreciated in your life. 
And people have wow. given just stunning answers to this. And then we say to them, so how are you going to let them know that you see them and know them and their gifts? Wow. What you know, a question, Mike. Right? Can, can you just tell us all the questions? Can you give us all the right questions? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's just the, the interesting questions, right? It's always the interesting questions like, you know, like that and like, you know, and you can you can ease people into these things like, Tell me about your favorite meal ever and who was there. Wow. You know, and then why was that so special? Tell me about, you Hmm. know, you don't ask this as the first question, but, you know, um, tell me about a time that you were accused of something you didn't do. Right. (laughs) You know, um, but another good one for opening because everybody it's interesting because nobody knows for sure, but everybody has a story. What are the circumstances of your birth? None of us huh. remember our birth, but we've been told about our birth. You know, but right. by, by somebody right. in some way, we're told some story. One of the favorite things, I learned a lot of these from the young people who would go around with this name, Bless and Connect. Jalen is particularly gifted, gifted at this. I remember walking with him once and he asked this guy we ran into in the street, what are you most proud of in your life? And this guy says, well, when I was five years old, I saved someone from drowning. And we're like, what do you mean? (laughs) And this guy starts telling him about how his mom told him about how when he was five, he noticed somebody who was drowning who nobody else was paying attention to and he got the attention of the adults and they went and saved this guy. Now wow. again, I don't know how much he remembered that story, but he remembered the story he'd been told about it. And it told sure. you something about how he thought about himself and felt about himself. You right. know, J- Jalen would ask people, so what dreams you have? I remember we went and saw this woman who moved to Indianapolis after Katrina. And she said, you know, honey, <laughs> in her New Orleans accent, you know, she says, you know, honey, I, I, I put on great meals and I'd love to do meals for people who don't have anything to eat. Great meals. And one of the other young wow. people standing there said, you know, my family didn't have any place to live for a while. That would have been great. I think about the same thing. I mean, if you get people together and then ask interesting questions, things happen that are magic. Yeah. And and we should make time for this in the church. (laughs) Well, that, okay. So that's exactly what I was just thinking is like, uh, I, Oh gosh, it's just so disappointing, even just to reflect internally myself right oh, now. I'm like, oh, you know, I, I might no, no. I mean, like, really, like, I think to myself, you know enough, Justin, that you need to just spend time with no agenda, and you're available to be with students. And it's just, it's hard. Like, it's hard to protect space and time. It's hard to not be thinking about what's next. Like, I don't want to be the kind of person who is you know, looking past the person in front of me to the next agenda on my, you know, agenda item on my calendar. Like I want to actually assume that where I'm at in this very moment to be with someone is, is enough and it's good. 
you know? And so like, that's a muscle that needs to be trained in me because I've been so conditioned to be thinking about things like productivity and efficiency. Um, whereas I don't know that community efficiency is not a core <laughs> value of community. Yeah. If you think about your life with your children, is it exemplified by efficiency? <laughs> no. Right. But can no. I say about this, no. that when you're thinking about the people outside your little circle, like in your work, again, we don't, we aren't God, right? We're finite, limited people. So one of the things mm -hmm. we can do is we can say like, oh, these people are really good at this, who I work with. I'm going to help them by, mm -hmm. I'm going to carve out time for them to pay attention to this right now. And then come, right. and then I'm going to scoot. I don't have as much time for it myself as I would like right now, but I can make time for them to make time for it. And, right. then, and then I can right. have them come tell me about it. We can dream sure. together about what to do with it. Well, and that that's when you deployed this army yeah, of absolutely. roving listeners, right? I and mean, that's the whole idea is that, sure, you can do this, but <clears throat> you could also enable a community to do this. Uh, and and start to value that by showing where your investments are, that you invest in people. Spending time you know, I, I do think about this because like when I thought of those young people, I was often jealous of them. Seriously. <laughs> I, wanted, I wanted to be there to do that. Yeah. And I figured out, no, this point in my life, what my calling is here in this place is to make sure this happens. Not that I had That's to good. do it. I remember a friend of mine was a friend of Robert Greenleaf, you know, the servant leadership guy. And uh -huh. he once wrote um, Bob Greenleaf a note and said, hey, I have this great idea. And he talked about what it was. And Robert Greenleaf wrote back and said, that is a great idea. Don't you do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, don't you do it. That doesn't mean somebody else around you shouldn't do it. It doesn't right. mean you don't share this. I mean, and I keep thinking yeah. about that ever since then. So, Yeah. Well, Mike, this is so good. I, I know in the interest of, of time and everything, we, we need to wrap this up. But I, I just, I feel like, uh, the gift that you have given our project and to me personally is this uh, permission slash provocation to ask different questions and to try to shake myself out of the sort of pre-existing con uh, conditions and, and circumstances that I've always imagined ministry or community development to take place within. And so Gosh, looking for what God is already doing, looking for the gifts that are inherent and assuming that people, um, have these gifts and, and can use them like that just has felt like nothing but good news. And at the same time, it's been really challenging uh, to, to try and critically evaluate how do I put time, money, you know, the things that we measure, the stories we tell, how do I reorient those things around this? So it's been it's been really challenging for me personally. It's been a real gift to the Missing Voices Project. Um, and for those listening, I, I really cannot encourage you enough just to pick up the book and and have these conversations, maybe read it with some other folks and, and talk about this, because I, I'm just convinced that this shift of moving away from a deficit based model to looking for the assets that are already there, it just makes too much sense. It just feels too uh, it feels it just feels true. It feels like the right way to move. So. I'm really grateful for your voice, Mike, in my own life. And um, 
I'm fascinated by the learning journeys. I, I've decided to incorporate uh, something like that into a course mm. this next fall that I'm like really excited about. We're going to go and spend time up in a monastery and talk to a farmer and, and you know, who knows what will come of it. Maybe nothing, but I doubt it. <laughs> so I think it's going to be fun, but any, any closing thoughts on no, your, I on just your really enjoyed this and I really appreciate so much getting to know the people who you've gathered around to be a part of this and the conversations you and I have had, and it's just been so rich and I'm very grateful. Thank you. No, well, you're welcome. And we're the grateful ones. So Mike, to close our time, uh, one of the things we do on this podcast is that each episode ends with our guest offering a benediction or a blessing of sorts to those who are listening. So you could imagine that you've got youth workers and, and folks that are, are volunteering around the youth ministry space. Uh, and they are asking questions about their communities that they love, that they care about, uh, that they genuinely want to see that change and, and the growth and the sort of the hope uh, emerge in those communities. What, what sort of benediction or blessing might you the offer? The benediction them? and blessing I'd like to offer is go to meet and love God in your neighbor. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Missing Voices podcast. If you want to be one of the first to hear about a new episode being released, or you want to make sure you don't miss out on hearing from one of our guests, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram and see what we're up to in St. Augustine within the Flagler College Youth Ministry Program. For resources connected to our podcast guests and topics, head over to the resources tab on the Missing Voices webpage at missingvoices.flagler.edu.